Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Changing World New Opportunities. John, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And you? I'm very well. We recorded this episode with James DeBunson, who is a portfolio manager on Janice Henderson's UK-based multi-asset team. And we're talking today about listed alternatives, why invest in listed alternative, what is a listed alternative, and how does Janice Henderson approach investing in them. I feel like we need to apologise, particularly me. Um, the sound on this one is not great. It was our first v- virtual podcast. We did it over Zoom. And yeah, I was really nervous that it wasn't recording properly. So I think I sound a bit a echoey and a bit sort of worried <laughs> when I speak to James. So I'm really sorry about that. But yeah, he was very lovely and game and coped with my amateurishness with the recording equipment magnificently. And I think he um, says some great things. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting episode because a lot's been said about alternatives in the context of DC and the industry is waiting for you know one big announcement about a large scheme allocating lots and lots of this area. And while some schemes are doing it, don't get me wrong, it's, it's not necessarily mainstream as yet, I don't think. And so speaking to James about, as you say, what alternatives are, what benefits they bring to a DC scheme was really interesting, particularly because a lot of these listed alternatives actually give investors exposure to the private market asset classes that, again, we're talking about in the context of DC. Also, because a lot of these things are actually linked to ESG and sustainability, wind farms, solar farms, and all those types of things. So for me personally, I find it a really, really interesting episode. And you can probably tell by the number of questions I asked James, it's definitely a subject I'm very interested in. Yeah, me too. I think it's a great episode. Um, So uh, without any further ado, we'll uh, hand over to James. Hi, James. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, no problem. I was wondering whether you might be able to tell us a bit about you and um, your role at Janice Henderson just to start with. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a portfolio manager on the Janice Henderson multi-asset team here in the UK. And my focus is is particularly on alternative investments. So that's basically everything that isn't a a mainstream liquid equity or or bond is what I cover. And I run a, a couple of, sort of dedicated funds that focus on alternatives. Nice. Can you tell us a bit more about Diversified Alternatives? Yeah, so the Diversified Alternatives funds we actually launched back in 2013. And it basically came back as a, um, a large UK defined contribution pension scheme came to us. And what they really wanted was liquid access to sometimes less liquid asset classes. And the way we're able to do that is we invest about two thirds of the fund through closed ended funds. So or or investment trusts, otherwise known as. And obviously, the beauty of that is in a closed ended fund, issue shares in the market, raise capital that way, put the capital to work. 
maybe buying property assets or infrastructure assets, for example, and you don't have to deal with inflows or outflows, which means you can invest with a sort of longer term mindset. So you have the benefit of getting those underlying net asset value returns from the underlying asset classes, but you're able to get in and out on a daily basis because of it's, uh, it's essentially a listed listed equity. Can you give us an example of some of the, the asset classes that you can get exposure to through this sort of alternatives bucket? And perhaps also as part of that, can you just give us an idea as to how that's evolved? You know, I think you said you mentioned you launched the fund 2013. Did I pick you up? Yes. Right. And how that sort of opportunity set has evolved over almost 10 years. Yeah. So we look at the portfolio really as sort of having three sleeves, really, or, or three groups of asset classes, which give us different drivers and characteristics. So we invest in private markets, so private equity, private debt, and sort of other niche, more niche areas of, of credit markets. Those sorts of assets we look to get higher than liquid equivalent returns. So we expect private equity to give us better returns than we would by investing in a you know a tracker fund or, a, or an actively managed listed equity fund. And the same with the debt sort of side of it. We're buying things like asset-backed securities or, or maybe private debt where we expect a higher return. But obviously, if you're doing that, you know, if you're a defined benefit pension scheme, you, you might have to invest in a 10, 15-year lockup fund. And obviously, we're doing it through the investment trust vehicle. So, so there we're looking for higher returns, but not necessarily diversification from what other people might have, you know, most of their portfolio invested in. And then we have the sort of real assets part of the portfolio. And real assets would be things like infrastructure, property, renewable energy as a sort of subsector of, of infrastructure. And there we want pretty boring, non-economically sensitive assets with sort of long-dated revenues, you know, so we can really look far out and see where the income's coming from. And the beauty of that area at the moment is there's a high inflation linkage. And then the third sort of pool of assets we look at are what we'd term to be much less correlated asset classes and strategies. And primarily, we look at hedge fund type strategies. So we're not, I mean, a hedge fund can be anything, really. You can go from the, you know, way riskier than, than equity markets to very, very low risk things. We spend our time trying to find strategies that really do something different to particularly equity markets. And that will offset some of the volatility that we might get through, for example, the private equity assets that we're investing in. And alongside those hedge funds, we look for uncorrelated things that, like reinsurance, so catastrophe risk, where you get a premium in return for taking on a bit of a reinsurance company's sort of risk against a major, usually sort of weather-related catastrophe that will cost them a lot of money in terms of um, insurance payouts, and things like commodities. Sometimes commodities are, are very correlated, but something like gold can often give you nice diversification benefits. And I think that, you know, the universe has really grown since we started in 2013. And I think the biggest area of growth has probably been, broadly speaking, energy efficiency. So 2013, I saw the first sort of renewable energy trusts launch in the UK, you know, wind farms, solar farms. And now that's really broadened out to energy efficiency vehicles, you know, that put, generate capital from putting LED lighting in and combined heat source sort of facilities and things like battery storage. And, and obviously that's been 
a key area of growth and, and needs a lot of capital. And the investment trust wrapper is a very good way of accessing that capital if you're the manager of those assets and you know giving people nice, steady, inflation-linked returns if you're an investor. So talking a bit about DC investors in particular, obviously trying to give them access to alternatives has always been a bit of a challenge. How much interest are you seeing from DC investors? And I guess what are the pros and cons of investing in in your type of fund if you're a DC pension scheme? Well, I think the interest is growing. And I think that's partly because performance has been good, but it's been noteworthy, (laughs) particularly here today. So I think it's very easy. Investors made very good risk-adjusted returns from just having a mix of equities and bonds which you can access very easily, transparently and at low cost. But obviously, the backdrop's got a lot lot trickier for both of those asset classes. So I think interest is really starting to pick up, even though we've been running this strategy and have three or four DC schemes in the fund. But I think while there's always been interest, it's probably becoming more active now because these asset classes... You know, they're they're newer to people. They take a bit more research and understanding. And now people are seeing, oh, they do actually perform, or a lot of them have performed in what's been a very challenging backdrop for both both equities and bonds. But yeah, and and it it is that access. It takes enormous amounts of sort of operational work and due diligence and other things, legals, to get invested in a a private fund, the, the whole LP, GP structure. Whereas this is a daily dealing UK OIC with all sort of with lots of similar characteristics to a mainstream multi-asset fund. In terms of the you sort of highlight the difference in returns coming from these types of asset classes compared to conventional, well, let's call it public equities and public credit. I'm just wondering across the different asset classes you can get exposure to, to what extent is it just delayed the impact we're seeing in public equities and public credit? And so it will inevitably come through but there might be a lag of three to six months versus those that just won't be impacted. So perhaps those with government sort of backed income streams, they might be almost completely immune, but there must be some degree of sort of linkage and, and a lag. But I just wonder if you could maybe highlight where the lag might be evident and others where there just isn't any impact at all or limited. Yeah, no, yeah I mean, that's a great question. It's private equity is probably the most pertinent case there is they are reporting valuations more frequently, but ultimately, you know, and some of them do monthly valuations, but actually a big part of that valuation change is simply some FX noise, FX moves. Some of them hold public equities because, you know, they've they backed something since very early days and then it has an IPO, but they still own it. So it's a listed, they've got some listed exposure. But ultimately you get the big valuation changes once a quarter, and that also has a lag because it has to you know, be audited, et cetera. But the fact is we're buying listed vehicles and the share price will react you know, and try and second guess how those valuations have moved. So our private equity book is probably down 15 20% year to date because markets have already, investors you know, have sought to price in what they expect to see in the underlying valuations. I mean, funnily enough, the underlying valuations that have come through have actually been pretty strong because they are in areas of 
economy, I'd say, which are pretty robust and, and where companies have pricing power. But there's always going to be skepticism about the, you know, the valuations until something is sold or there's a, there's a, a very real valuation point or catalyst, then this is not a real life valuation. You know, it's not a market valuation. It's, it's still a private company. So that bit, you know, you'd say the valuations look a bit stale on the underlying NAVs, but the, the share prices are probably up with events. Some of our, you know, we've got one favoured holding called Harbourvest, which is a very broadly diversified private equity company. It's trading on a high 40s discount to the last NAV. So we think a lot of the potential bad news is in the price. But then a lot of that you know, stodgy stuff, well, stodgy is a bit rude. The less spicy stuff in the middle of the portfolio, the real assets, as you say, is, is incredibly robust. I'd say property less so because as yields have gone up, there's a sort of mechanical effect on, on underlying valuation. So even if you think the underlying fundamentals are pretty strong, the rent's coming through, they're actually getting decent amount of rental uplift because there's some CPI or RPI linkage. There is a mechanical sort of valuation issue there. What we're seeing in renewables and infrastructure is because there is such explicit inflation linkage, which is not capped, so a lot of the property rental uplifts are capped at sort of four, four-ish percent. You're getting a full pass-through from this much higher than expected inflation. They are impacted by higher rates to a certain extent, but it's being more than offset by stronger revenues because of A, higher power prices for renewable energy and B, you know, that mechanical linkage to inflation. So I guess looking ahead, rising inflation obviously continues to be an issue for pension schemes, what are you doing in your portfolio and what are you what are you seeing similar funds do to mitigate all the risks that we're seeing at the moment, not just from rising inflation, but from the very fast changing world situation that we find ourselves in? We always start the year with a sort of almost academically driven exercise where we run something called a strategic asset allocation. And that's that's where we try to look at very long-term expected returns. So 10-year view and then you look at historic risk and correlation and that sort of stuff and you and you plug in what your return target is for the portfolio and in this case which is cpi plus three percent and then you look at that and you go well that's all very well but between that years time stuff's going to happen <laughs> and and we need to adapt that to that so at the beginning of the year, the, the strategic asset allocation was suggesting that we needed quite a high weight in private equity. So as if valuations are high, expected return to that actually that meant there's a lot more risk in that part of the market. Interest rates looked as though they were going to go up, which obviously has a, tends to have a negative impact on valuations. So we started the year with a very big underweight in, in private equity. We had a big overweight to renewable energy because we liked the inflation linkage. And then an example of acting quite quickly to changing dynamics in the world, when Russia did step up its invasion of Ukraine, we quickly added commodities. So we, we tend to always own gold, but we very rarely own more industrial commodities like metals and, and energy, partly because we don't think we have any insight into 
where prices are going to go. There are much greater experts out there than us. But also, it doesn't tend to add any diversification benefits. But in this instance, we really can think of a better way of hedging the risk of, of war getting worse and that having the, you know, the impact on supply, etc. So, you know, that's how we can react much more dynamically. So it starts with a sort of very long-term view and then we'll change things around. Valuation is one of the key things. When things get expensive, quite simply, we'll reduce our exposure to those sort of areas. And if they get too cheap, people get too pessimistic, we'll increase them. But private equity is the lowest weight it ever has been in the fund. Things look better price than they were, but we don't see any particularly positive catalysts on the horizon to make us sort of add risk in that area. That makes sense. I guess just turning back to the fund, it would be really interesting to hear about how you construct the portfolio. I mean, we've talked a bit about that already, but I guess how do you decide how much goes into each area? Obviously, that I guess that's a fairly dynamic process and, and you've talked a bit about it in response to the changing world around us, but Talk us through your approach to that in a bit more detail. It really is a combination of of looking at the world from the from the top down and trying to trying to digest, you know, all the key drivers of markets. You know, and, and these are alternative asset classes, but still, you know, they're very much going to be influenced by company earnings, interest rates, inflation, you know, general growth trends in, in the world. So we obviously have to try and factor all that in. But then we will, you know, see companies, closed-end funds, open-ended funds, you know, on a, on a sort of daily, almost daily basis, we'll have meetings and, and that can generate new ideas as well. So we we try and absorb all that information. I'd say we, we are very much helped as we sit on the multi-asset desk at Janus Henson. And there's about, I think there's 11 of us sort of investment professionals and three of my colleagues are purely focused on the sort of top-down and macro. And while we do our own research, Pete Webster and I, who run the portfolio, it is very useful to have these other guys on the desk who are, that is their bread and butter. And it's, it's very useful to have someone who can tell you in an informed way about what's going on in China, rather than having to you know add an extra wedge of research papers that you need to, to get through to come up with an informed view as well. So... So that's how we do it, really. And it's, it's, you know, because we're investing in investment trust, I think that maybe is a, is a sort of slightly niche part of what we do is investment trusts clearly do trade at discounts or premiums to the underlying net asset value. You know, the, as I mentioned with the private equity, everyone's got a bit gloomy and they're trading at massive discounts relative to history. You know, and it, it is quite an inefficient market, I would say. So we have the luxury of sitting out there looking at these share price moves every day and trying to be dispassionate about whether the market is getting over-pessimistic or, or over-exuberant about any of these things. And so we will trade quite actively around that sort of discount premium noise, which is part and parcel of, of, of investing in closed-ended funds. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I think investment trusts typically haven't really been that well used by DC schemes. So can you talk to us a bit more about the investment trust themselves and, and when they might be appropriate for a DC scheme to invest in and, and when when not? Absolutely. Certainly in my mind that they are the, the most appropriate way for anyone to get liquid access to less liquid underlying asset classes. I mean, we all know that there, there have been attempts to put less liquid asset classes into an open-ended fund wrapper 
and that has clear issues when everyone wants their money back at the same time. And I know that the Treasury and the FCA are trying to promote a, a sort of 2.0 version of open-ended funds that invest in less liquid asset classes with, you know, not with daily dealing with a few other sort of protections in there. But I, but I still think they have huge drawbacks compared to a closed-ended fund. And it can be very frustrating a closed-ended fund moves to a discount because you get a few sellers in the market. But that's, that is the price you pay for getting liquid access to less liquid underlying asset classes. And ultimately, if you buy at the right price and you hold for long enough, you will get that underlying return that you're after. You just need to be vigilant about and not overpaying for things. And so I really do think they are a really appropriate vehicle for DC to invest in. But I think what people have in their mind is they want the best of both worlds. They want to have, you know, that very steady underlying net asset value. And they don't want the share price volatility. But no one's come up with a solution how to avoid that. So and I think the mitigants the way you mitigate your volatility is by having a diversified portfolio. I mean, for example, in infrastructure, we'll have six names, I would say, at the moment. In renewable energy, we've got eight or ten. And they all have slightly different dynamics. And that way, there'll always be periods where there's proper risk aversion in the market and you'll get slightly caught up in it. But diversification, as the old saying goes, is the only free lunch in economics. And it really works in this, this area as well. So I, I think they are the most appropriate things for DC if you want access to these um, attractive, diversifying assets. I think you mentioned there was eight potential holdings within renewable energy or, or six. So is that just eight different plots of wind farms or is it some wind farms, some hydro plants? And are they mostly the UK or do you have to go global for some of these things? Just it'd be useful just to sort of bring to life. In fact, if you could do it across other asset classes as well, I think in your top 10 holdings is Biopharma Credit, I think it is. So if you just almost bring it to life, that would be really useful. Thanks. Yeah, the re- renewable energy sector, it, it probably needs renaming to, to the energy efficiency sector because it, it's moved on from just being some wind farms and, and some solar farms. And some of them have diversified in battery storage as well. I think I saw an interesting statistic that 40% of the UK's battery storage, roughly, is held in investment trusts. So, it is, I mean, it just shows, goes to show what a key area it is for people being able to, to get the finance, get the capital into building up our you know, new energy infrastructure. You've also got, there was a new hydrogen fund that was launched, I think maybe maybe just pre-COVID, so a couple of years ago. That's obviously an interesting new technology that we're going to need to store energy because batteries are, are good, but they're not that great at storing renewable energy for the long term or a longer term so that's where hydrogen comes in yes and, and then the t- other technology you you have got hydro to a certain extent it is all a little bit european focused at the moment there's a couple of us vehicles out there but it tends to be predominantly uk and northern europe more and more southern europe as well but definitely european bias and then in things like infrastructure we've got a full range from social infrastructure which is, you know, hospitals, schools, military accommodation, you know, which really is totally and utterly economically sensitive. You know, as long as these buildings or facilities are are there and available for use, then you get your revenues from, you know, the local authority, you know, ultimately the government. 
But you can also get access to more economic infrastructure as well, digital infrastructure, telecoms towers, data centers. That's another growth area as well. So it really is a wide, wide universe. And the opportunity set has really grown since 2013, since, since we launched it. What are the investing in alternatives? You know, obviously they're highly diversified, which which sounds great. But but if you're a trustee, are there any risks to be aware of? Well, yeah, there's no return without without risk, and a lot of them are the same risks. You know, much higher. I think for, for the middle part of our portfolio, those real assets, the real risk there. Yes, but for the real assets part of the portfolio, the the biggest risk I would say is is real interest rates going up. So that's if you know, your, your government bond yields go up more than inflation. So that's clearly not a problem at the moment. It's a very niche set of circumstances, I think, when that happens. But that will have a real impact on on the valuations because they're very inflation sensitive. But if inflation's pretty low, but bond yields are high, that, that will definitely have a mechanical impact on, on the valuations. In terms of the actual underlying businesses, you know, property, private equity, some parts of property, private equity, some of the credit investments will be economically sensitive. And if you have a big downturn, recessionary risk, you know, tenants are going to be hit, vacancies will go up. So there are very similar risks that you get in a in a public equity or bond market. But I think there are some quite big nuances to, to that. I mean, if you think about a, a sort of renewable energy or infrastructure trust, it's almost like an investment index linked bond sort of on steroids with a lot less duration risk. So I struggle to think of anything that isn't that is as good as that in a in high inflationary environment. And it, a high inflationary environment is, is bad for pretty much everything. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're an equity or a bond, even if you're a floating rate bond. Double-digit inflation is a killer for pretty much every asset class. But these things, you know, our renewable energy sleeve is up about 20% years to date. And that's nothing to do with the valuations changing. That They've actually, they, they usually trade at a sort of high single-digit premium. And they're now trading at sort of low single-digit premiums because the price is not keeping up with the underlying any of these. And then the other thing is I, I haven't really spent any time talking about the hedge funds. That hedge fund sleeve that we've got, because we spend so much time trying to find things that are uncorrelated. And that's done really well. That's up sort of 5 7% to where are we now, sort of early September. And there's really, you know, not just protected value during those big sell-offs we've had, but actually added value because, you know, they do lots of clever things to make money from actually higher volatility in markets, which is a hard thing to find for people who do that well and do it repeatedly. Just thinking about that hedge fund sleeve, given the universe is so vast, do you almost break that hedge fund bucket up into protective, all-out growth, some kind of macro funds, some you know market neutral thing? How do you try and segment that? Well, we tend to exclude anything that might participate in a big sell-off. So we don't have any equity longshore because I find... Over time, we have in the past, but I've always found when you really need them to <laughs> hold their ground, they get caught up. And it's no fault, you know, it's just part and parcel. It's, they are using equities to generate returns. And we used quite a few systematic strategies like trend followers or managed futures. So they can be 
they can be correlated. But I think, you know, when you're investing across equities, bond markets, commodities, and FX, you can get some really nice differentiated returns. And, you know, the strategy we've got in that area is, you know, it's very short bonds. So making money from there, it's very long energy. So making money there, you look at the monthly reports and it'll be, you'll see that the biggest driver of returns has been coffee or lean hogs or something of the agricultural commodity sector. So, you know, even if it's long equities, it can be a diversifier because it has exposure to all these other things. So we don't tend to sort of divide the hedge fund universe out by substrategy. We tend, just tend to try and filter out anything which might have some correlation to equities and then try and find the best manager that we can find in, in that whichever area that fits that criteria. And when you're thinking about the SAA and sort of potential returns from this particular sleeve, what do you guys expect to get from hedge funds given the universe is so wide? Do you just expect to get equities plus a little bit or is it, I'm sure it's much more sophisticated than that, but just curious as to how you sort of model potential returns. Yes, I mean, that, that is a tricky thing to tackle. What we've found is the the least bad way of trying to forecast expected returns from such a sort of heterogeneous non-linear sort of universe is we divide things in the strategies that you mentioned, you know, global macro event driven, and then we regress the returns of those peer groups against mainstream asset classes. So you're sort of backing out a return from their sensitivity to equities, credit spreads and that sort of thing. So it comes up with comes up with something, but you look at it and then you, you know, the returns are often very, very different to that. So it's it's as good as you can come up with, I think, but it's much harder doing this sort of SAA for this kind of portfolio than it is for a, you know, a standard balance portfolio, that's for sure. James, one, one fun thing I wanted to ask you is, when you see, you see pension schemes allocating to, to the fund, what's a typical sort of allocation that, that you see them making? I think maybe the best example is to give the, the scheme that seeded the fund. So yeah. they actually have it as part of their sort of diversified growth portfolio. And it's a 5% weight in that overall portfolio. So they've got some you know, very liquid equities, bonds. They've got, they're going into less liquid areas as well. But yeah, 5% is the allocation they've done there. And to be honest, I'm not entirely certain what, what the other people have done. But yeah, it's, it's not going to be the, the large, larger weight in the portfolio. But it, we found that if you combine you know, 5 10% in this portfolio with any other sort of balanced portfolio or, or or diversified growth portfolio in all circumstances seems to improve the sharp ratio. So the risk-adjusted returns are improved somewhat. Yeah, I think it'd be remiss of us not to kind of talk about ESG. Um, yeah. And whilst this isn't an ESG-badged fund, a lot of the things you've talked about could sort of be characterised as ESG-friendly. I'm just wondering, you know, for DC schemes that want to get greater exposure to these assets in a more liquid fashion, this sounds like a really useful way of doing it. But in terms of getting the data out, because not only do clients want exposure to the markets or the, the asset classes, they need to be able to report on it as well. I just wondered, as part of your engagement with these underlying managers, how easy is it to actually extract the information that, that you need and indeed ultimately end clients might need going forward? Yeah, the, the companies themselves are, are acutely aware and the data they're starting to provide, data and just general, you know, specific ESG type research and colour is very good. And we collate that ourselves. 
The problem is data providers, the standard data providers, haven't got down yet to this sort of smaller end of the market, which is natural. Obviously, you start with the mega caps, you know, where most people are invested. It is gradually happening, but there are still, unfortunately, big holes in, you know, when we try and run our portfolio through one of the main ESG data providers. But that is just, that is gradually changing. We're confident it's going to be up to scrutiny quite soon. But I think it's just, it's it's a bit of a slow evolution. And I think it does need to, it's all well and good at us providing some data and slicing and dicing in the way that we think sensible. But then you can't, you know, a, a prospective investor or a DC scheme can't really compare that with another portfolio because they'll have a different subjective view about you know what's important and and how you score something so yeah unfortunately i think we're we're sort of at the bottom of the queue because these tend to be sort of mid and small caps essentially that we're investing in but we we will get there and and if everyone wants to see what you know how we rate things we can give them that detail but i know that's of limited use because people like to compare apples with apples and therefore it's all come from one data provider i think or one of the key data providers yeah, it's, it's a big challenge, but it sounds like it's evolving really quickly. Not as, yeah, not that quickly, but yes, it's evolving. <laughs> so. Not as quickly as we'd like, I'd say. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Oh, well, James, we should probably wrap up because we've kept you talking for ages. It's been so interesting learning more about your investment process. And thanks so much thanks. for your time. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.